the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Professor Brian L. Keeley. Hello and welcome to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. I am Josh Edison in Auckland, New Zealand, and as always representing Northern Hemisphere, we have Professor Brian L. Keeley. How are, how are things where you are? Hey Josh, how's it going? Good to see you again. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a lousy day in Auckland, to be honest. It was it was turning into summer earlier this week, and now now the sun's all gone away. But that's okay. There'll yes. be plenty more, I'm sure. Similar here. It was uh, I'm on the Gulf Coast, as you know, and uh, this week it was starting to get cold. It almost got down to freezing, and then it got warm again. So uh, we're having our the. The opposite weather, yeah. as we'd expect from our different hemispheres. Yes, yes. So what are we talking about this week? Well, it's uh, it's another episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre, um, mm. and we have uh, the first paper, uh, I think, from this person, Doctor M. Dentith. Uh, yes, now, yes, yes. True, true story. I went to university uh, with M. Dentith way back in the in the late nineties. Um, so they're off th- these days, often uh, uh, Zhuhai in China, I believe. Uh, position over there, but been writing on um, conspiracy theories for quite some time now, and we're finally reaching their contributions. So I'll I'll play a little chime, and uh, then we can get straight into it. Yes, yes, yes. So it's nice, nice that you mentioned. This is, a, I think, actually an important uh, point in the history of the uh, conspiracy theory masterpiece theater series. It's something that we haven't had to really address until now, and that's you know. What we've been looking at up to this point have been published papers, you know, either journal articles or our chapters in books. And uh, we've been doing that up to this point. But of course, we kind of had to because that was pretty much all there was out there was published papers in journals or in, uh, you know, we saw the David Cody collection where he brought together both previously published papers as well as some new papers. But actually, beginning with this paper, we're actually skipping over something that's important which is uh, before the publication of this paper, there was what I believe is probably the first PhD dissertation on the philosophy of conspiracy theories. And that PhD dissertation that was successfully defended uh, back in 2012 was turned into a monograph, the first monograph that was dedicated to uh, the study of philosophy of conspiracy theories. Uh, That's a book called The Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories, which is that dissertation got turned into a book mm. in 2014. And uh, and then, but we're not looking at the books because if we start looking at the books, it's just after yeah. this monograph, many other things are going to come along and it's a lot a lot more work to look at a book and to, you know, to, to discuss it the way we've been doing in this mm. in the podcast to this point. I think we'll stick with papers. But it's nice to see this because this is the first paper by uh, Dentith, but it's based on uh, or connected to this earlier work they've done that, that where we skipped over the mm. work that was done prior, the, an actual dissertation and then uh, a monograph, uh, a nice long piece of work. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, this, this one does seem more manageable. Although that said, I was sort of reading through this saying, okay, we can probably skip through a lot of this quite quickly because a lot of it's restating things we've gone before and then look back and see I've written six pages of notes on it. So I don't know. I never know if I'm very good at writing notes or very bad at it. But either either way, we've got plenty to talk about. Mm. So get, get, getting straight into it, it has, has an abstract, as good papers mm-hmm. do. 
Uh, the abstract mm -hmm. reads, conspiracy theories are typically thought to be examples of irrational beliefs and thus unlikely to be warranted. However, recent work in philosophy has challenged the claim that belief in conspiracy theories is irrational, showing that in a range of cases, belief in conspiracy theories is warranted. However, it's still often said that conspiracy theories are unlikely relative to non-conspiratorial explanations which account for the same phenomenon. However, such arguments turn out to rest upon how we define what gets counted both as a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory, and such arguments rest upon shaky assumptions. It turns out that it is not clear that conspiracy theories are prima facie unlikely, and so the claim that such theories do not typically appear in our accounts of the best explanations for particular kinds of events needs to be re-evaluated. Mm. Which uh, says what it means and means what it says, I think. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really like about this paper is, I mean, it's, you know, sometimes to call something short and sweet is is an insult, but actually, I think it's it's a very, you know, it it gets to the point. Mm. It doesn't doesn't spend a lot of time going off on tangents. We don't have, uh, uh, you know, lots of extended examples and thought experiments and so forth. I mean, you know, they get right to the point and. Uh, and lays out things in a very clear way. Mm. Yeah, although that said, I think this, the, the first introductory section is probably the one that we can skip over fairly quickly because it's a bit of a bit of a summary of um, what's come before. So it starts... And, start, and stuff that we've been talking about in, the, in, the, yep. in this podcast for quite a while now. Yep, yes, indeed. It starts... Uh, Whilst philosophers have been sorry, whilst have, philosophers have been late in coming to the analysis of conspiracy theories, it seems that as a discipline, many of us analyse them with much more sympathy than our peers in the social sciences. And a raft of papers and books, starting with Charles Pigden's Popper Revisited or What Is Wrong with Conspiracy Theories, philosophers like Brian Alkeeley, Yuha eh? Riker, Joel Bunting and Jason Taylor, Lee Bash and David Cody and myself have argued that as conspiracies occur, and that theories about conspiracies sometimes turn out to be warranted, conspiracy theories cannot automatically be dismissed just because they're called conspiracy theories, which is basically a good summation of, of, of the themes that we've gone over many times before, and just gives a little bit of a breakdown about how philosophers tend to not think that conspiracy theories are prima facie irrational, but they do, or some philosophers and, and people in other disciplines express the view that while conspiracy theories, they may not be inherently irrational, but they're still unlikely, and this seems to come down to the fact that they think that conspiracies themselves are unlikely. And uh, so then we get a quick a quick survey of, of opinion. Uh, that section one is the introduction. Sections one point one and one point two are philosophers and the unlikeliness of conspiracy theories, and non philosophers and the unlikeliness of conspiracy theories. Yeah. Before we get into that, there one other thing that I think is worth noting from the introduction is. Uh, he, uh, M talks about uh, coining a new uh, discipline. He calls it the philosophy of conspiracy theories, uh, which I think is interesting because I believe it's in the book uh, that this uh, that he that M just cited uh, pointed to. I think he, that's where that term uh, conspiracy theory theory gets uh, mm. gets coined. Uh, M is the first person, I believe, to use that phrase, although he doesn't use it in this particular paper. No, I don't think it comes up here, but yes, no, I think you're right. Uh -huh. <clears throat> so in, in the section Philosophers and the Unlikeliness of Conspiracy Theories, we just get an overview of um, of papers that we've looked at, I, I think just about all the ones that we've looked at before. Uh, Popper, 
Papa thinks conspiracy theories are unlikely. Kasim Kassam thinks they're unlikely and that conspiracy theorists suffer from gullibility. Uh, Neil Levy thinks they're unlikely compared to official theories. Pete Mendick thinks they're at least no more unlikely than non-conspiratorial theories. Uh, Steve Clark with his dispositional situational thing. We remember that one. And then uh, he mentions Peter Lipton, who I don't think is someone who's familiar to me, but uh, mentions the book Inference to the Best Explanation which in mm-hmm. which apparently there's a passing mention that conspiracy theories tend to only seem likely if you're already suffering from paranoia. But um, that's 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 not one I'm familiar with. Yeah, I think you know Lipton's more known as a philosopher of science, and mm. uh, and I'm familiar with his work uh, from philosophy of science. And yeah, I think that was just. I mean, in many ways, it's in a lot. In many ways, it kind of follows in, tra- in the tradition in the tradition of. Uh, philosophers of science writing a book about one thing and then throwing in a negative mention of conspiracy theories as they're going along the way Popper does uh, in uh, the famous early Mm. piece by uh, Popper, which is just a really short passage in this much bigger book. And I think in many ways, Lipton is kind of you know, uh, doing the same thing, just like, hey, I'm telling you a book about, you know, I'm giving you a book about scientific explanation, what makes explanations great, and what makes them bad, and, you know, what makes them, you know, how do they work, and then, oh, by the way, let me throw in this little aside about conspiracy theories as an example of clearly bad theorizing, uh, but as we see in, uh, in, in the paper, is going to show us that if you want to handle it that quickly, you're probably going to mess up, because mm. you're going to be working at a very shallow level and it turns out conspiracy theories are a little a little deeper than that you know maybe they're maybe they're still wrong but they're not so obviously wrong or wrong for such simple reasons you gotta you gotta spell it out a little bit more yeah so then uh it moves on to non-philosophers and what they think about conspiracy theories and their, their relative likeliness. So he mentions uh, good old Sunstein and Vermeule, talked about them plenty and talked about people mm-hmm. talking about them, their, their crippled epistemologies. Um, mentions Michael J. Wood and Karen M. Douglas, which is a paper that we looked at. I don't know if we've, don't think we ever covered it in Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre, but it is one we've looked at a very long time ago when we were talking about the conspiracy theories around Building 7, World Trade Center Building 7, because they wrote a paper that looked at those conspiracy theories um, as, a, as a, I think a bit of a case study. But um, they, they uh, what was the quote? They, they characterized conspiracy theories as a kind of negative belief, one which calls into question another explanation and is indicative of a worldview in which most of us, most of what we are told is a lie. They consign belief in such theories to something akin to paranoia. And, and goes through a bunch of other people from, from disciplines outside of philosophy who all basically take a similarly dim view of conspiracy theories. Um, and Azim has it all of these suspicions stem from some variety of the claim, look, conspiracies are unlikely, or even if they do occur, conspiracy theories are unlikely, right? But Ian would disagree that maybe they're not as unlikely uh, as these people think they are. Now, at this point, I have to admit, I was a little bit, a little bit suspicious of the paper at this point because it, it started to sound like papers we've seen in the past where a person will say, this is the thing, this is the thing which is wrong with all conspiracy theories, uh, and now it seems to be going the other way. This is the one thing that all people who take these views uh, is characteristic of it, which 
Seems like kind of a generalist, a generalist kind of a line to take in a paper that's defending particularism, but um, I don't know if my suspicions are, are unfounded or if it was just a thing that, having read a bunch of these in the past, it just jumped out at me. But maybe we can yeah, see that's a, as we that's go a, towards. It's a good point. I mean, because I think one of the things that strikes me about this paper in terms of the, the litany of papers that we've been looking at in the Masterpiece Theatre is this, this pointing to a kind of a schism within the study of conspiracy theories between you know, those in philosophy or the humanities on one side and those in the social scientist on the other. And, what, and one of the things uh, M is putting uh, their finger on here is this idea that the starting assumptions of at least social science, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it turns out philosophers are a mixed bag according mm. to him, right? Some of them are, you know, have a kind of a knee-jerk suspicion of conspiracy theories, whereas others have kind of a uh, starting point of taking conspiracy theories more seriously. Uh, there's this, you know, you might think of it as a healthy mix of attitudes within the humanities, or at least within philosophy. But then this idea that, well, on, but on the social science side of things, uh, the standard view seems to be that there's something wrong with them. Right, mm -hmm. that, that we need to explain, you know, why people have these irrational beliefs, which kind of takes it for granted that they are irrational beliefs. And I think M is uh, one of the first people in the literature to kind of really start to point to this distinction. But I think what you're pointing to is an interesting one: is that uh, you wonder whether M is is generalizing about or overgeneralizing about those on the social science side of things that uh, you know, kind of essentializing them in a way that uh, uh, M is arguing against essentializing conspiracy theorists. Right? You know, it's it's bad to say all conspiracy theorists believe X uh, or all conspiracy theories have this, the following thing in common, which then becomes the basis of some generalist re rejection or acceptance. But it, uh, M seems quite ha happy to say all social scientists think X about conspiracy theories. And, and admittedly, the, the ones that are uh, discussed here do seem to share that in common. But with you, I kind of worry a little bit of, you know, is are we being a little, are we cherry picking a little bit here? I mm. want to look deeper at the social science literature to see whether that's uh, whether that's accurate. Hmm. But nevertheless, if we take it as read that unlikely, or, or certainly unlikeliness definitely is the issue that M looks at. Um, and so, if we if we take it as read that that's the that's the salient issue. Yeah, I think there's this. I really like the last line before at the end of section one, where uh, M is talking about the importance of you know analyzing conspiracy theories being a particularist, and, and M says, uh, this is particularly important because whilst many of us might reasonably think claims about conspiracies should be evaluated according to evidence, many theorists, as we have seen, argue that we can dismiss such claims out of hand merely because they are conspiracy theories. And you know, making it really clear what's the claim M is, is wanting to call into question here, which mm. is this, this idea that we don't want to, we don't want to fall into an ad hominem argument against conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. Uh, we need to don't just name call them, but actually see what's right and wrong about what they say. Hmm. Yeah, so that's definitely the aim. And if we if we take it that the relative likeliness or unlikeliness of conspiracies and conspiracy theories is, is uh, at the base of it, uh, that takes us to section two of the paper, which is titled Unlikely Compared to What? 
which of course is a, is the is, is is a good point. Likeliness and unlikeliness is relative in any case, and so when we're talking about, it, are we saying they're, they're unlikely compared to non-conspiratorial explanations, or, or just in general, or what? So um, another another bit of a bit of a survey. Some, some people say that conspiracy theories are unlikely because conspiracies are unlikely, either because conspiracies are just plain rare or they're really successful or they're, uh, what's the quote, based on unverified and relatively implausible claims of conspiracy. And then other people say that conspiracy theories are unlikely because given a choice between a conspiracy and a non-conspiracy theory, the non-conspiratorial explanation will be just, just, just more likely, all things considered. But Ian said, well, this isn't clear, because as, as other people have argued, as you have argued, conspiracy theories happen all the time. History's full of them. Um, mm-hmm. At this point, Ian refers to Catherine Olmsted's book. I know her name's come up a bit in the past, um, detailing American conspiracies, and Ian adds a bunch more of his own. And, and actually, at this point, I can point out uh, my own personal connection to M which is I the first time I met him was at the uh, conference in Miami. I believe it was uh, right around the time this paper came out, maybe a little bit before, uh, maybe it was 2014. And this paper, I believe, came out in 2015, or no, maybe it's 2015, this one yeah. came out in 2016. 2016, I think, yeah. But I met him at this conference that Joe Yusinski put on. Uh, Joe Yusinski, friend of the show, who mm-hmm. uh, we've interviewed before. And that was interesting, I think, in part looking at this paper, because that brought together a bunch of social scientists like Joe Yusinski and and, uh, some of the people that are talked about here. Catherine Olmsted was there. Uh, Catherine gave a a great talk on the history of conspiracy theories in in American history that was based on or came out of her book that's cited here. Uh, So... Yeah, it's it's interesting to read this paper knowing that uh, M was at this conference where we had a bunch of really one of the first time when a bunch of philosophers actually it wasn't a bunch of philosophers it was basically me uh, Lee Basham and M I think were the only uh, philosophers there but there were several other people in the humanities Jack Bradich uh, was there does cultural studies and and others and I think actually uh, it was a nice mix of people but it was the place where we started to notice some of these kind of differences in the ways in which social scientists were thinking about conspiracy theories and the way that the people in humanities, there was people were starting to kind of fall into different camps there. And and so interesting to see this paper because in many ways, I think it's kind of documents a little bit about what what M saw when uh, uh, M came to that conference. Hmm. So it seems seems then at the end of this that Debating about how likely or unlikely conspiracies are depends in part on how you define what counts as a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory. So the next two, the two subsections under section two are section 2.1, what counts as a conspiracy, and section 2.2, what counts as a conspiracy theory. So, so now, so definitions, now, now we're doing philosophy. This, now, now mm-hmm. I know it's a philosophy paper when we're getting into definitions. So section and jointly two, and necess, necessary and jointly condi- uh, sufficient conditions. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, section 2.1 what counts as a conspiracy it's uh, it, it's the, it's the definition we all know and love the good old we we have the three conditions the conspirators condition the secrecy condition and the goal condition uh M says these conditions are individually necessary and jointly sufficient for some activity to be classified as conspiratorial and it's fair to say that some beliefs about the likeliness or unlikeliness of conspiracy theories hinge on finessing or questioning such a minimal definition of what counts as a conspiracy and so uh, then we, it looks back at some of the things that we've we've covered in the past 
um, Pete Mandick's paper, uh, who, who suggests that conspiracy theories need to be kept secret. But I think as we've seen when we've looked at his paper and other, I think other people have made a similar claim that it doesn't really work out because for, for all the reasons we've seen in the past. You know, some, sometimes the whole point is that conspirators want, you know, after the conspiracy has been achieved, they want to take credit, they want you to know about it. And it also sort of, if you say conspiracies have to be kept secret forever, then that means by definition nothing we know of as a conspiracy theory is actually a conspiracy theory. It, it, it doesn't really seem to work out. So M certainly wants to go for a maximal definition and, and basically says, you know, okay, yes, that rules in things like surprise birthday parties that we might not want to think of as conspiracy theories, but, you know, too bad. That's, 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 a, that's, that's a bullet we can bite. Mm-hmm. And it it, it, it also uh, a maximal definition avoids the problem that the likes of, of Pete Mandick and Popper have had in the past of how exactly how you account for these historical conspiracies that that, that we know happened that we have you know, uh, um, uh, uh, documentary proof of occurring mm-hmm. and so Ian says that d- defining away certain cases of known conspiracies as not conspiratorial enough moves the problem of assessing the likelihood of conspiracy theories away from talk about the evidence to simply making it a definitional issue instead, which is, is basically what we want to avoid. And that then leads into the section on what counts as a conspiracy theory. Uh, so Ian says, no matter what we believe about the likeliness of conspiracies, surely we're justified in thinking that conspiracy theories are unlikely. After all, there are an awful lot of conspiracy theories, and many, if not most of them, turn out to be unwarranted. This kind of argument is commonly put forward as one reason for being suspicious about conspiracy theories generally, but it too relies on us defining what gets ruled in and what's ruled out by the term conspiracy theory. And so then we get to the line of argument that we've seen lots of times um, in the past, the idea that, that official theories aren't conspiracy theories basically by definition. Um, he quotes David Cody from Conspiracy Theories and Official Stories. He quotes Neil Levy from Radically Socialized Knowledge and Conspiracy Theories, but says... Sometimes theories are official because they've been endorsed sincerely by field-relevant experts, and sometimes theories are official because someone has either insincerely endorsed them or because they have no relevant expertise and so their endorsement means nothing. And gets into the idea of the weapons of mass destruction that were supposedly in Iraq, which uh, was the official theory. The official theory was that they were there, and yet that was either being put forward by people who were, I don't know if we ever got to the bottom of whether it was people who were genuinely insincere, or people who wanted to believe it was true but didn't have the expertise to actually uh, to, to be able to, to speak about it truthfully. So the official theory ended up being... Uh, not entirely true. And I guess we just had Colin Powell just passed away recently mm. and uh, seemed to at least regret his role in, you know, giving that speech to the UN and either feeling like, uh, you know, at, at the very least, he feel, felt kind of used and had his reputation tarnished because he thought he was, at least he proposes that he went forward with a good faith you know, I thought these things were true. I was led to believe they were true and that the evidence was good. But, you know, he admitted later that, you know, say what you want, the the evidence that I presented was not accurate, mm. unlike what I thought at the time. Yeah. <clears throat> so we go on then to look at uh, Steve Clark, who we've um, seen plenty of in the past and his business about uh, dispositional explanations and situational explanations. And so he sort of kind of wants to say that conspiracy theories are the wrong kind of explanation. But again, in uh, doesn't want to accept that, and, and at the end of it says that restricting the definition of what counts as a conspiracy theory ends up making conspiracy theories relatively unlikely, because the interesting cases of warranted conspiracy theories get defined away as not being proper conspiracy theories. 
However, if we keep to a general definition, then we can analyse conspiracy theories with respect to the evidence which either warrants or does not warrant them, rather than dismissing conspiracy theories out of hand for just being conspiracy theories. And this is basically what Ian's been angling at the whole time, getting into a, 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 a particularist. We'll see the word come up, I think. Um, yeah, and, case I, and I think evidence. what's really, what's interesting about the move that happens between, particularly between that the section uh, that you just were reading, the, I guess it's 2.1, where we're talking about what makes a conspiracy a conspiracy. Now in the section, the next section, he talks about what makes a conspiracy theory a conspiracy theory. And one of the nice things that I think comes up as that transition happens is there, the generalist view by saying that you can reject a conspiracy theory solely on the basis of it being conspiracy theory really means you only have to look at one thing. Right. You just all there is is the conspiracy theory, and then you can judge it to be rational or irrational or warranted or unwarranted. But you just have to look at the one thing. But when we get into the discussion of conspiracy theories and the importance of official stories and whatnot, notice that, that what that brings in is now that there has to be multiple theories on the table. Uh, now you can't just look at a single thing and say, oh, this good thing is a good theory or bad theory. Now what you're confronted with is multiple explanations of the same event. And now you have to choose between them, right? That you can't just get away. I mean, one of the things that happens in the move to it from a generalist account to a particularist account is in some sense, you got to do more work because in one, you only have to analyze the conspiracy theory or you have a theory, you analyze it and go, oh, it's a conspiracy theory, therefore reject it, end of story. But if particularism is right, one of the kind of side effects of that is that you end up having to do uh, a comparison, right? Which means you have to look at, at at least two different theories and the whole idea of bringing up this inference to best explanation, it has as its background assumption that there are multiple explanations to choose from, and then you have to pick the best one. Uh, you know, and that's one of the things that uh, I, th I think is, is useful to point out is the idea that, and also it points out, you know, he, uh, uh, or M doesn't make it uh, clear necessarily here, but there might be multiple conspiracy theories that are unofficial, right? Mm. There, you know, if, if you think about the case of 9/11, right? There's, there's, you know, there's theories where, you know, the, you know, the the FBI or at least the United States government was behind it. There are others that have maybe George Soros was behind it. I mean, there are multiple different kinds of theories uh, about what happened. And now we've got, you know, and then there's the official explanation as well that it was Al-Qaeda. Al but now you're in a situation where there are multiple theories on the table. And then we need to, you know, if we want to explain the situation, well, we need to pick just one of them. How do you pick just one of them? Well, you got to figure out which one is the best explanation. And and one of the things I like about that move is it kind of makes the whole story, it's pointing out that like, yeah, the story is much more complicated. It's not a matter of just looking at one theory, rejecting it out of hand it's uh you know life life is not so simple hmm. so that's sections one and two are basically the setup um for section three which is a case for treating conspiracy theories on their individual merits so here Ian starts actually arguing specifically in favor of a particularist out uh, outlook so 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 does that introduces the terms particularist and generalist crediting um joel bunting and jason taylor who's paper we've looked at in the past and says that you know, this this is what we're going for. 
we have you have a generalist idea or the particularist idea of particularism is what Ian is going to want to uh, argue in favour of. So uh, we then get another bit of a survey of the literature up until this point that we've seen before. Um, Ian cites Charles Pigden, David Cody, Lee Basham defending the particularist view and reiterating Pigden, Ian says, a general scepticism of these things called conspiracy theories makes it all the easier for conspirators to get away with their conspiracies. After all, it's easy enough for them to respond to any claim about their activity as being merely a conspiracy theory. Yet we need to remember that it's uncontroversial to say conspiracies occur, so why then is it controversial to say conspiracy theories are irrational to believe? As such, the preceding argument as to why we should treat conspiracy theories on their individual merits is designed to bolster the particularist case, given many of the attempts to show that conspiracy theories are unlikely come out of problematic generalizing strategies, should we not assess particular conspiracy theories on their individual merits? Which is to say, if we accept that conspiracies are not unlikely, or at least not as unlikely as some conspiracy theory theorists have made out, surely they can, in a range of cases, feature in our best explanations. Which I like that it does bring in, there's the, there's the ethical dimension of it as well, that um, mm-hmm. there is, you, you, can, you can make make it easier for bad people to get away with doing bad things if you allow them to write off criticisms as just a conspiracy theory. Yes, I think that's right. So we move into section 3.1, showing that a conspiracy theory is likely. So if, if, if we're going to be particularists, then we'll need to evaluate conspiracy theories on their merits to see if they're good or, or the best explanation. So Em asks, how do we work out whether some explanatory hypothesis which cites a conspiracy as a salient cause is the one we want to say is the best explanation of why some event occurred? And uh, Em brings up then the three, three kinds of probabilities that we want to consider. You have the posterior probability, the extent to which the available evidence renders some hypothesis probable, the prior probability, the degree to which the hypothesis is independently likely, and the relative probability, the likelihood of the hypothesis relative to the other hypotheses being considered. And so uh, Lipton Lipton comes back in at this point. Sorry, you had No, I was just saying it's, it's like we're we're getting into the you know the Bayesian territory mm. here of prior probabilities and posterior probabilities of you know, like what? Uh, it's no longer about whether things are just simply true or false, but you know how likely are they to be true or false, and being able to make those comparisons. Hmm. So he brings up Lipton again, who um, had the idea of, of theories can be lovely, but mm. uh, conspiracy theories are, are usually lovely but unlikely, meaning that their posterior probability is low, even though the other two may not be. But as we've seen, the idea that conspiracies can't be independently likely is usually based on particular, more restrictive definitions of what counts as a conspiracy or a conspira- uh, conspiracy theory. Yeah, and I think, uh, so one of the things I thought this, so coming back to Lipton, it was something I wanted to, this distinction that Lipton draws between uh, the lo- the lovely but the unlikely, or the love the unlo- the lovely and the likeliness of theories, and uh, so so what's interesting one one thing that's interesting to me here is that so the title of the paper is when inferring to a conspiracy might be the best explanation, and the idea I mean best explanation here is a is a technical term within the philosophy of science. There's this concept of the inference to best explanation uh, or IBE. It's sometimes abbreviated as. And the the idea of IBE or inference the best explanation actually comes out of uh, kind of general theory about how to uh, reason to a conclusion. How, how do you get to a conclusion given you know some evidential starting point? And traditionally within philosophy, as you know, right, the 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 you know the 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 famous two 
ways of getting there was one by deduction, right? So you got good old fashioned, logically deductive arguments, you know, modus ponens and modus tunnels, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. That's a deductive argument. So you draw that conclusion, it deductively follows from those premises. And then that's deduction, but then not all arguments work like that. We also have more probabilistic arguments. Uh, you know, with, if it's, you know, it hasn't rained today and it hasn't rained the day before and it hasn't rained the day before that, I, I might conclude that it's not gonna rain tomorrow because it, you know, looks like we're in a dry patch right now. And that's an inductive argument. And for, for you know, millennia, those were the two argument forms that people were familiar with within philosophy in, in the West, right? You, arguments were either deductive in form or inductive in form, and people look through all the different ways in which you, you know, can use those arguments in those ways. But at the end of the 19th century, people realized that there was there's another form of explanation that seems to be going on, and it was the kind of explanation that seemed to be going on in the case of science, because science had elements of deduction in it, had, you know, obviously people were doing deductive things when they were like predicting experiments and so forth. You know, if this theory is right, therefore this is the kind of result I should see in this test. And then you go out and test it. So there were deductive elements to it. And clearly probability had a lot to do with uh, uh, science as well. You've got to go out and collect a lot of data in order to, to do your inductive generalization, but something still seemed to be different going on. And one of the first people to talk about this was Charles Saunders Peirce, uh, an American philosopher of science, and he called it the he called it abduction. All right, so you have deduction, induction, and abduction. Uh, and abduction is this kind of scientific approach. Uh, that term really never caught on outside of, of philosophy. You don't hear many, very many people invoking abduction. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the hypothetico-deductive method. Right, which is supposed to be this scientific method where you posit a hypothesis, i.e. a candidate explanation. You see what kind of results are supposed to come from that hypothesis, and then you go out and test them. And by the way, this circles back to Popper, right? This is what Popper is famous for talking about is, is this idea that you know good theories, uh, you should be able to deduce from a theory what the consequences are and then go out and test them. And if you have a theory that either you can't uh, deduce any consequences from or that if you can deduce consequences, but they're you know unaccessible in one way or another, then like this is a bad scientific theory according to Popper. That you know that yes, it's supposed to be deductive, but the point is you want to posit a hypothesis and then go out in the world and test it, and that eventually becomes this uh, inference to best explanation, right? And that's another phrase that gets thrown around when we're talking about this thing called abduction. And if you're going to, you know, that, that you're confronted with multiple explanations and you have to pick between them, you've got all these different hypotheses of what happened, they're candidate explanations, and you got to figure out, well, which one should I endorse? And so that then gives you the problem of like, okay, I'm supposed to pick the best explanation, but how do I pick the best? I mean, what, what makes an explanation better than another explanation? And the nice thing that I think Lipton does is he points out that like, there's at least two different ways of understanding what it means to be the best explanation or a better explanation. One is it just seems more likely. <laughs> you know, it just, you know, yeah, that that hypothesis seems like it's the sort of thing that we should expect to happen. That one doesn't, that doesn't surprise me as an explanation. That seems like a pretty reasonable explanation for what's going on. But the second way that it gets the, to think about 
an explanation as being good or bad or what get called or, or whether they have certain kinds of what are called virtues right just like a person can be virtuous we can say hey this this saint is a better person than other people because they have these virtues they're very charitable they're very generous they're very kind you name your favorite virtues and we say yeah this is a better person because they have these uh these virtues well the idea is that theories have virtues too uh virtues like simplicity right the better explanation this is occam's razor right if you have to cho choose between two theories you pick the theory which is simpler why? Because it, is it because the universe is simple? It's like, well, I don't know, but it's it's a virtuous thing for a theory to be simple. So if you have to choose between two otherwise equal theories, pick the simpler one. But other virtues that get discussed are things like unification, right? You know, instead of saying, you know, hey, I've, if I have a, a, an explanation that tells me, hey, these two different phenomena that I thought were completely different actually have a common cause, right? That they, you know, that you might think that fire burning and rusting seem like two completely different you know phenomena but somebody comes along and goes no i think they're both oxidation i'm going to explain both rusting and things catching on fire as at root being the same sort of thing it's the it's the taking on of, of oxygen like that's a virtue of a theory that it takes two things and shows that they're just one and there are other ones there's things like fertility like how 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 many other ideas does this theory generate does it you know does it is it an intellectual dead end or does it raise all sorts of new questions for scientists to go out and study coherence consistency there are all these other virtues that theories may or may not have and what lipton points to is this idea that okay well the other you know one way of understanding theories as being the best explanation is that they are more likely the other way is that they have all these virtues, right? They're they're really, you know, they're simple and they're unifying and they're, you know, they're coherent both with other things, you know, they're consistent within themselves and they're coherent with other things that we think about the universe and they're very fertile. That's another way of understanding betterness or bestness. And that's what Lipton calls loveliness. Like a theory that has all of those things would be lovely, right? It's like, oh, wow, it's a beautiful story that kind of ties a lot of things together and, and, has, and tells a nice, simple story about things. That's one way to be a good explanation. But, and I think it's really interesting or not, it's really nice that, uh, that M brings this up in the case of conspiracy theories, because as I've written, right, I think one of the things that's really attractive about conspiracy theories often is that they are lovely in Lipton's sense, right? They have these features that we want theories to have. We want our theories to be simple. We want them to be coherent. We want them to unify things. And conspiracy theories do that in spades. But what but the worry is is that what well, it'd be you know it it a, a good theory would want it's not only lovely, but also is likely. Because <laughs> if it's lovely but it just seems really unlikely, then it might be a lovely thing, but it's just, it's just still, it's, it's not going to be a best, it's not going to be a, it's not going to be best on multiple levels of best mm -hmm. or multiple ways of analyzing best. And so what M is putting his finger on here is this kind of, as, as I think Lipton is right to point out is like, yeah, there's a split in the way that we analyze theories, uh, a schism between two different ways of thinking about what makes a theory, a good theory. And, a lot of conspiracy theories do really well in one category, or at least this is the analysis that some people want to give, is they do really well in some in some aspects, but they really don't do well in the other. But they're really good at being lovely, but they're really bad at being likely. And then M comes along and goes, I agree with you that they're lovely, but actually I think you're wrong to, uh, you know, to besmirch them for not being likely. 
that that a little bit of a a little uh, sleight of hand is going on in the use of definitions and so forth to make them look less likely than perhaps we ought to to consider them. Hmm. I think then that brings us into the next section of the paper, which is the independent likeliness of conspiracies. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ian says, our estimates as to how independently likely conspiracies are varies over time. Certainly post the revelations of the NSA's mass surveillance program by Edward Snowden in 2013, claims of large-scale political political conspiracy have been treated much more sympathetically and considered more likely by ordinary reasoners. It appears people underestimated how independently likely it was that a major political conspiracy was happening here and now. And then continues, working out the true prior probability or independent likeliness of claims of conspiracy being in amongst the pool of credible explanatory hypotheses will be, of course, difficult. However, it's fair to say that people either underestimate or underplay both historical and contemporary accounts of events which cite conspiracies as salient causes. And goes on to use the, the death of Alexander Litvinenko as an example, where, where basically all the evidence we have, uh, he, was, he was poisoned by polonium, which is not something you can get your hands on unless you have basically, you know, ha- ha- very high up connections. So all the evidence we have of his death is, is that the, a conspiracy was involved. And as Ian points out, there, there are multiple competing conspiracy theories. Was it, Either it was Putin or people loyal to him who orchestrated the death. Potentially, maybe it was anti-Putin people who uh, who poisoned Litvinenko just to make Putin look bad. Maybe Litvinenko himself consented to this to be a martyr for the cause. We don't know. You know, There, there are multiple explanations, but they're all conspiratorial. And everything we know about the case would lead us to believe that the conspiracy theory is the likely one there. Yeah, it's unlikely that you accidentally got poisoned with polonium-210. It's mm. just it's it's just not something that happens on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and uh, and it's also unlikely to be a cock-up as well, right? Yeah. It's 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 uh it's it seems like it's the sort of thing that would have to have been done intentionally, and and only certain parties would be able to carry it out, state actors for the most part. Uh, so, you know, either it's a state actor, in this case, the Russian Federation carrying it out, or somebody who, another state actor who wants to make it look like it was the Russian Federation. So, hmm. so when you have a situation like this where you've got multiple competing conspiracy theories, you're going to have to determine which of them is, is the best one, and doing so as M says, would show that the explanatory hypothesis is probable in the posterior sense, Lipton's likeliest explanation, as well as the prior and relative sense. Then we get a little side note about evidence in prior probabilities, where M points out that the amount of evidence you need to show that a conspiracy theory, or any any other hypothesis, uh, is relative. In some cases you might need more, and in some cases you might need less. Um, M doesn't go into it right here, but it, it does seem to sort of tie into stuff we've seen in previous papers where we talk about the kind of societies that people live in. And some certain yes. societies, you, you um, would be much more willing to believe that conspiracies would be occurring and would re- require much less evidence to be convinced of it and so on. Mm. And, of course, conspiracy theories are independently likely... I think I've written that wrong. I'm not independently like uh, 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 I'm just reading my notes. And I realize I've, I've missed out a not, and I was about to say exactly the wrong thing. Um, but basically, basically, conspiracy theories are not necessarily likely for any kind of event you might ever want to propose. There are certain kinds of events, such as the poisoning of someone who defected from Putin's government, where a conspiracy theory would be likely, but, but just any old happening is not necessarily the case. Um, but there's a conspiracy yeah, behind I, it. I thought this, this is a good point where he's. Uh, where where M is trying to make it clear that 
Uh, M doesn't want to be seen to be a, a generalist on behalf of conspiracy theories. Mm. It's again, it's uh, the argument here is in for, favor of 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 particularism. Uh, it's it's not just you know just because there's a conspiracy doesn't mean that uh, that that's the more likely that's that it is necessarily the best explanation. Uh, I, yeah, that 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 paragraph ends. Uh, it may be, it may make sense to consider a conspiracy as a salient cause, say, in a political scandal, whilst also thinking that the extreme weather event in Otago last August is most likely explained by a change in the climate, rather than, say, covert, covert US-sponsored weather manipulation. Mm. After all, conspiracies might be more common than we think, but only relatively, only relatively likely when it comes to explanations for certain kinds of events, say, political scandals, and relatively unlikely in others, say why the courier always delivers packages when I am not home. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, very, very much wants to avoid going the other way and becoming, as you say, a generalist in favour of them, and it's still about uh, evaluating on them on their individual merits. Um, so we get to section 3.3, which is, is kind of tying everything together. It's, it's entitled Connecting Prior, Posterior, and Relative Probabilities. So M says, when we consider any claim of conspiracy which is embedded in a conspiracy theory, to wit an explanation citing a conspiracy as a salient cause, we have to demonstrate that there is a link between the conspiracy and the event in question. And a little later he continues, demonstrating there is a connection between a conspiracy and the occurrence of some event, such that the conspiracy is the salient cause of that event, shows that the conspiracy is probable in the prior, posterior, and relative sense. And at this point, again, stresses that this is still particularism. M says, none of this says that conspiracy theories are prima facie likely. That would be a generalist claim, which would be as problematic as the generalist scepticism typically associated with conspiracy theories. Rather, this is an argument in favour of particularism about conspiracy theories. When we hear some conspiracy theory, we should at the very least treat the claim of conspiracy seriously and look at the evidence. This is not an arduous burden. When inferring to any explanation, we have to look at the evidence before we can accept or dismiss it. Conspiracy theories are no different. And so then, but, but we still see a lot of people writing the subject who want to say that conspiracy theories are special or different in some way, which makes them prima facie unlikely. And we've, we've seen that plenty of times in the paper we've looked at in the past. Yep. But... I think the point of the thing is if conspiracies are more independently likely than they're given credit for, then the burden of proof on a conspiracy theory might not be as great as some people think. Um, so Ian says, In a world in which we admit not just that conspiracies occur, but there are more of them than maybe we'd like to think, if someone claims there's a conspiracy in existence here and now, should then should we not investigate said claim? That is, should we not just dismiss it? No. We should treat the allegation seriously enough to ask what is the evidence and how well does that evidence stack up compared to other rival explanatory hypotheses? Could this particular conspiracy theory prove to be the best explanation of some event? If the answer is no, then the conspiracy theory is unwarranted and we've learned that some other explanation will be best. However, if the answer is yes, then we have on our hands a case where inferring to a conspiracy turned out to be the best explanation. And then um, you tend uh, to point out that uh, the likes of people like social, uh, social psychologists seem to want to say that belief in conspiracies, uh, conspiracy theories rather, has negative social consequences due to their unlikeliness, which are associated, um, and they, they associate belief in conspiracies with health problems, decreased civic virtue, hostility, and radicalization. Mm -hmm. But in these cases, uh, the, 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 I, I didn't 
not sure that I entirely got that, but again, it just seemed to sort of seemed to be another thing that occurred that he wanted to make sure was covered before getting on to the rest of it. But yeah, I agree. I, I was a little puzzled by because that's a I don't know. Maybe it, I mean, maybe it's maybe he's gesturing at what again might we pointed earlier that that M points to this distinction between how humanities folks or philosophers on the one hand think about conspiracy theories versus how social scientists do. You know, I, at some point I was trying to figure like, was this an attempt to kind of go back to that distinction and and point out that, well, maybe social scientists are just simply being motivated by a, a different set of concerns, right? That they they are concerned with things like uh, you know, public trust in in our institutions and so forth. And they're and they're more concerned about the uh the political impact of of believing in conspiracy theories and that that might explain why they kind of start off on a different foot than the humanities folks do but that i mean that was but yeah that was the best that i could make mm. of why there's this kind of to me it feels like a, a move back to talking about social science again and and trying to figure out well this is true mm. i just don't know necessarily why why it's here yeah. at this point in the paper yeah i mean so so having said that social scientists uh, psychologists will like to say there might be these negative consequences i think that then the argument against that was that they're 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 simply not saying that these behaviors are bad because these people are evaluating conspiracy theories on their merits and coming up with these bad consequences they're saying it's because individual psychological features of these individuals are the problem mm -hmm. and he finishes by saying yet if it turns out we're wrong about the supposed unlikeliness of conspiracies here and now those negative social consequences distrust and authority apathy with respect to engaging in the political process and the like might very well be appropriate responses to talk of conspiracy theories it's then important to understand this issue of just how probable conspiracies really are and what this says about how we go about inferring that a conspiracy theory is the best explanation this is of serious import because it looks very sorry it very much looks like we typically and artificially underestimate the prior probability of conspiracies with that in mind in our condemnation of conspiracy theories those who believe conspiracy sorry conspiracy theorists those who believe conspiracy theories needs to be similarly examined which brings us then to the conclusion which is one of those nice conclusions short, that's yeah, yep, short enough <laughs> that i can read the whole thing out uh, in, in one go um it concludes as we have seen, much of the reasoning behind thinking both conspiracies and conspiracy theories are unlikely comes out of defining them as such, rather than asking what prevents them from featuring in the set of best explanations. If we claim conspiracies are only conspiracies if they are kept perfectly secret, or that conspiracy theories which have been endorsed are no longer proper conspiracy theories, then we run the risk of defining away some truly interesting questions which are at the root of whether or not conspiracy theories really are irrational to believe, unwarranted, and the like. It seems that by defining away conspiracies and conspiracy theories as prima facie unlikely, then we not only do the analysis of inferring what gets ruled in by our best references at a service, but we unfairly shift the burden of proof onto those who might well have good reason to infer that a conspiracy theory really is occurring here and now. This matter is of import to the academic discussion of these things we call conspiracy theories because, once again, as we've seen, there are a plethora of views, both inside and outside of philosophy, which adopt question-begging definitions in order to come to the conclusion that such theories are bugs. And there we have it. So, I mean, yeah, a, a lot of it was uh, uh, a restatement of things we've seen plenty of times in the past, but um, mm -hmm. I think uh, a very nice... Good, good sort of positive case for adopting the particularist viewpoint there, and and I think doing so explicitly when perhaps it wasn't made in those terms um, in previous papers. Yeah, well, I liked it. 
Yeah, I think it's a very nice summary of a lot of the things that have, it's it's a nice one to do in the, the Masterpiece Theater because it kind of sums up a lot of the, the, the discussion at until this point in the literature, but also I think interestingly kind of starts to lay out some of the uh, ideas that you know, are going to become much more important because in many ways, M's paper, less the paper, this particular paper, but the book out of which this is taken, uh, being the first monograph in, in the philosophy of conspiracy theories or conspiracy theory theory kind of sets the stage. People now start responding to uh, M's book because there's this nice, long and, and well thought out developed theory of, of what's going on in conspiracy theories. So I think in it's a nice turning point in our in our discussion of the various masterpieces of conspiracy mm. theory theory. Yeah, mm. not a good a good paper to read. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I will. I, will, I do want to correct one mm -hmm. uh, correct the record on one thing, which is uh, in in the notes. It's actually about uh, Pete Mandic's paper. So Pete Mandic has this paper called uh, "Shit Happens." Yep, looked at that one. Uh, um, yep, we looked at it before. In the footnote, uh, M says, shit happens is Mandic's playful term for what are commonly called coincidence theories or cock-up theories. Such theories explain away the occurrence of an event as being the result of often unpredictable, complex, and interesting causes. While such theories might look conspiratorial, they are, in fact, better explained as the product of happenstance, uh, which is right. The only thing I'd point out is because I, I was – I'm – Personally, I take this as a personal affront just because Mandic actually got that from me. No. Uh, it's actually it's it's a, a line. It's it's one of the two quotes that I have at the beginning of my of conspiracy theory papers. And uh, and and Pete actually was a graduate student at uh, Washington University in St. Louis when I was a postdoc. And I that was when I was uh, right after this paper, before this paper got the the on of conspiracy theories paper got published. But I had already written it and sent it in, and I was quite happy to be the first person, as far as I know, to get the phrase "shit happens" into the Journal of Philosophy. Right. That mm -hmm. that and also I have a paper with a uh, Monty Python uh, title uh, as another paper the that Spanish I got published. One, yep. Yep, yep, the no. Spanish. Appreciate that you know, one, definitely. There, there are very few things in life where you can really feel proud and, you know, getting the phrase shit happens into the Journal of Philosophy or or a Mighty Python title uh, in a in a philosophy journal. I mean, does, you know, let let me enjoy those few victories that I have as, a, as an academic philosopher. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, right. so overall, um, a nice paper to have looked at and be interesting to see what comes of it. M, M writes a number of papers after this, so yep, there, yep. Will, there will be more to come. Mm -hmm. So I think unless, unless you have any final comments, we can probably bring all of this to a close. No, I think it was a, it was a good contribution mm. to the Masterpiece Theatre and uh, got some new ideas out there and, and, and nice summation of some of the older ones. Mm. So until next week, I guess. Oh, I suppose, of course, I do have to mention that uh, we have bonus episodes and what have you, and, and if you're a patron, then you could get one, and if you're not a patron, then you could become one by going to thetrain.com and uh, podcasters guide to the conspiracy and all that, all that, all that slightly vulgar business that we podcasters have to involve ourselves in at the end of every episode. But, but with all of that out of the way, uh, I think... You know, I'd, I'd like to say, I mean, you know, this this M. Dentist person, it's pretty good, uh, some pretty good ideas. I think oh. uh, we ought to and figure out a way of involving them in the podcast in some way. That would yeah. be... Uh, Get an interview, an interview maybe one day. Something like in, that. Uh, in China time, that can't be too hard to work something out. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Seems like they might have something to say that would be useful to the podcasting world of uh, of the philosophy of conspiracy theories. That seems like a, 
It would be a move in the right direction, I think. You'd think so. You'd think so. Yeah, we'll have to see what we can organise, I suppose. Uh, but until that day, until we get until we get dentith on this show itself, I think we'll just have to leave you leave you our audience members to go about your business uh, and just say goodbye. And I'll say tiddly bonk. Looks for me.